everyone, welcome to Infuse Church Online. My name is Taylor, and today we're kicking off a new series where we're going to be talking about the things that we, I think, have forgotten in the modern world of love. And I think if we remember them and then we put them into practice, they could be a real game changer in all of our lives. Stick around. This Sunday, uh, we are starting a new series um, called Modern Love, and uh, we're going to start a little baby bit differently than maybe I normally start messages. Um, I don't know if you pay attention to how I normally start messages, but uh, we're going to do it a little differently in the fact that we're going to uh, have to do a little thinking. Um, it may feel like a little bit of a history lesson, which I don't know what you thought of your history class growing up. Maybe you fell asleep. I hope that's not the case today. Uh, but I think there is something extraordinarily special about the thousand plus year history that we're going to skim through in uh, about like 10-15 minutes. And so I hope that if you haven't started the coffee, um, you, you will uh, because we have a lot to get through. Now, I promise you this will tie back into the message, but I wanted to begin by talking about humankind's, like in general, mankind's relationship with the gods or God, and specifically how that relationship has looked in the past, especially uh, in the time uh, about three or so thousand years ago, kind of where it started. And in fact, you might find there to be a lot of uh, relatable components of uh, relationship with the gods then as it is maybe with God today. Um, so what's I think so interesting about even a couple thousand years ago in, in mankind's relationship with gods is mankind, uh, despite the fact that they didn't have much for science or technology or things like that, uh, they were uh, wise or maybe aware enough to recognize that something incredible was engaged or a part of this world and this universe. Because they looked at the world around them and said, this is almost, I don't know, too good to be true or just too amazing to be without some uh, person, something, some entity involved in it. I mean, just the concept of gravity, this idea that if I just hold my phone up and then I let it go, it falls. Like, who thought of that? Like, who put that into play? Who, who, who thought to themselves, hey, if we have a, an object with a certain amount of mass, or in, actually all mass, has some amount or degree of gravity, and it kind of brings order out of this chaos that is, allows us to stand on, on two feet, allows us to work and move around, because if you could imagine a world without gravity, that would be, that would be pretty wild. And so in our world today, it is pretty amazing. And, and so they not only looked at their world and they said this is amazing, but their conclusion was that someone had to be in charge. And, and then um, I thought, hey, you know, th th that's a really good conclusion. But then to go further to, to think to themselves, really brilliant idea, I think, but that we should get God or the gods or whatever is in control on our side. Because wouldn't it be really great if God or we could somehow manipulate, control God to do what we wanted God to do? The question is, how do we get God to do what we want God to do? In fact, some of you might have answered that or asked that question of yourself um, or your family or your friends uh, in your life. How do I get God to do what I want God to do? And so as I thought about relationships or the relationship with God in the past or gods in the past, I, I thought there was kind of three things that consistently were a part of mankind's relationship with their deities or deity, okay? And it's these three things right here. Manipulation, transaction, and capitulation, okay? 
And so I said it was a thinking Sunday. We are also talking about big words today, okay? So manipulation uh, is kind of like negotiation, but negotiation tends to have at least some benefit for both parties. Manipulation tends to only have benefit for one party, okay? And, and it's often done in a way in which the other party doesn't know that it's actually happening. And so how this would work out with gods, or especially pagan worship or pagan gods at the time, is you would, uh, you would look at what was going on in the world. You'd say, hey, it's not raining enough right now. And so I need to do something to try to manipulate the god or gods into doing something that benefits me. And so if we, need somebody, if we need some rain, then we're going to figure out like, hey, what did you guys do the last time it rained? Okay, we're going to do that too. Because then maybe that will somehow manipulate God into doing what we want. Or, or we need to win a battle, and so we're going to do something or sacrifice something or do something to try to get the gods to be on our side. And some of us, at least in modern terms, maybe you've done this, whether you grew up in church or not, a, a common way to manipulate God is to just stop doing bad things. And the thinking that if I just stop sinning, then God maybe will do what I want him to do. Or maybe you've even had that conversation with God. God, I promise I will stop doing this one thing if you will just help me out with this one girl. God, I will stop doing this one thing if you would just help that handsome man to notice me. Modern world of love, yes? Okay, and then there's transaction, oftentimes associated with, like, I scratch um, your back, you scratch my back, okay? I'm going to pay you something, I'm going to give you something, I'm going to offer something up to have you help, uh, help me out, uh, and to get somehow to get God's blessing. And then the last one, capitulation, is essentially just give in. Just, just surrender entirely to whatever I say was often used— and, still kind of is often used in, um, in humankind's relationship with their followers. So essentially like priests or the religious leaders would often get their followers to just give in. Like you just leave your brain at the door, just believe every word that I'm saying. You know, don't ask questions, even if they're good ones. You just have to have enough faith. And if you just have enough faith, then God will do it. And the, really the problem uh, is you, and you just have or aren't giving in enough. And so that was oftentimes a relationship that people had. They'd offer sacrifice in front of altars, or they'd go to the altar of this or the idol of that, and they'd try to just convince the God uh, or gods to give in to what they wanted to, or they wanted for themselves. Okay? Now, just out of curiosity, as you look at this list, would you consider these to be healthy relational behaviors? Hopefully not. That these are qualities that you would uh, not want to be in your uh, relationship with your spouse, um, with your kids, with your family, with your friends. But yet, isn't it true that these are qualities that have at some point in time, if not currently, snuck into your relationship or your perception of God and your relationship with God today? And what's so interesting is like 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, in the midst of, of this kind of relational thinking in terms of our relationship with the gods or God, began a very unique relationship with one God. And that was the Judeo-Christian God that we know and talk about today and, and we as a church uh, worship and celebrate and honor. 
And what was so unique, so many unique qualities of this particular relationship, but one of the things that was so unique is God came into this world and God said, um, I am not going to reveal myself as this amazing, omnipotent, powerful, like, whoa, kind of God and just do, uh, you know, lightning, thunder, all that kind of stuff. How I'm going to primarily reveal myself into this world is through people. In fact, a group of people. It's not going to be through, like, super sacred text. It's not going to be through kings. It's not even going to be through priests or pastors or religious leaders. It's going to be through people. That is my primary, primary method of connecting with this world. And what also was unique about this particular religion and this particular God entrance into the world, it, was, um, it began with a commitment and not a, a commitment uh, that was like, you help me, I help you kind of commitment. It was a very one-sided commitment. It was God coming into this world and saying, I commit to you. You have done nothing for me. You have given me nothing. I am just deciding that I am going to commit to you. And he began this relationship uh, about uh, 3,500, give or take, years ago, with one man. And this man is a very relatable man because he's a very imperfect man, uh, and most of us consider ourselves to be fairly imperfect people. And this particular man, um, God showed up to one day, and this particular man had a a number of failings, um, one of which is he would laugh at God, not in like a laugh with God kind of way, but like laugh at God kind of way, like you're silly God, like you're kind of out there, man. That's just not generally a good thing to do. Uh, He would also, um, on multiple occasions, he told people that his wife was his sister, and he kind of claimed that that was to protect everybody and himself and herself, but that was kind of weird, and I think he could have found a different way around it. He had some problems, okay? But God sought this man out and came to his doorstep or tent flap, probably more accurately, and God said to this man, I am going to commit to you. Specifically, here's what he said to a man named at the time, Abram. He said, or Abram fell face down, and God said to him, as for me, God, this is my covenant, my commitment, my agreement with you. You will be, he goes on, you will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, father of many, is what that translates to. For I have made you father of many nations. Now, just a show of hands, and I honestly, I hope everybody will participate in this, just a single question. How many of you have heard about Abraham, this particular Abraham, before you came in those doors today? How many of you have heard of Abraham? Yeah, almost all of you. So isn't it interesting that there were many people that lived 3,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 1,000, 100 years ago? You can't name them But Abraham, you can name. That this 3,000 years, in fact, God goes on in a couple chapters later to tell Abraham, I will make your name great among nations. So isn't it interesting that over half of the world has this guy, Abraham, as a part of their religious narrative? Today, 3,500 years later. Did Abraham do anything to earn it? No, not really. Was he going to do anything to pay God back for this awesome commitment on God's part? No, he would never be able to pay him back. But God said, 
I commit to you, Abraham, nonetheless, that I will make you great among the nations. I will make you a father of many, many nations. And 3,500 years later, almost all of us in this room know Father Abraham. Now, you also know that he had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. Okay, and if you didn't know what, how that song went, you didn't miss out on much in Sunday school. But anywho, um, so God committed to Abraham, and then he had many sons, and, and eventually got to the guy named Joseph. You may have heard of him. He had an amazing technicolor dream coat. They didn't call it that then, but they do in the musical today. So anyways, he got into Egypt and kind of helped out Egypt, all this kind of stuff. And his nation, this nation of people that were descendants of Abraham, began, started to flourish in Egypt, and they started to do really, really well. And then the Egyptians were like, I don't like that. And so essentially the nation of Egypt decided that they were going to just enslave this uh, descent, the descendants of Abraham, this nation uh, of, of people descended of Abraham. And so that didn't turn out very well. And so God came back and got involved um, because God said, listen, I committed to Abraham to make him great. And right now my nation is a slave nation. And so I got to do something about it. And so he went to another man. Um, this guy's name was Moses, may have heard of him, and whole burning bush ordeal, this kind of thing. And he said to Moses, he said, Moses, I am going to set my people free, and I need your help to do it. And Moses said, very relatable again, Moses said, God, I'm a nobody. I'm nothing special. God, you're going to need somebody to speak to your people. God, I got like the speech impediment issue thing going on, and that is not going to be like, if you want someone to, uh, to represent you, God, I am not a great representation of your glory and your power. And God said, that's perfect. Because you don't understand, Abraham. I'm not looking for perfect. I've just committed, and I follow through on my commitments. And so, what God ends up doing is a, ends a superpower. The Egypt was a superpower at the time. Takes his nation, does some miraculous things, takes his nation out of Egypt, okay? And Moses leads them begrudgingly all the way to the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai, which some of you have known. Um, and so there they sit. That's where the nation sits. And as I was thinking about this, I just thought to myself, like, that, that is what a, like a loving parent would do, right? Like, if you decided to be God of a nation, you were like the father, the birth of this nation, you created this nation, um, that's what a good parent would do, right? You parents, hopefully, would like run into the midst of the superpower, right? You would stand up to the superpower for your kids and say, that is enough of you, I am taking my kid out of here, right? Right? You would do, you would do that, okay, Good. Okay, so that's what you should do, okay? You get in there and just tell the, that superpower what's up, okay? Unless it's the police, then don't do that. But, okay, so you take your, you take your kids out of the, and so Moses gets them out, okay? And then God says, I am going to talk to my people. And God does something even more unique, okay? He goes to this nation. He goes to this people group, and he says, I am, he's introducing himself, because most of these people don't know. They've lived their entire lives as slaves in Egypt. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, not because you did anything, not because you offered, not no manipulation, no transaction, no capitulation. I just did this because I told you I was committed to you out of the house of slavery at, the, at Mount Sinai. 
And what's so interesting is the uniqueness of all of this continues because God steps into this new nation and he does something that was kind of really unheard of in, in those years uh, when it comes to um, religions. He brought them a code of morality, a set of laws to live by. Because usually these come from kings or, or leaders and they'd make a bunch of rules and then they'd kind of do it on the behalf of God because God put them in charge. In fact, they were like gods. And you, you kind of heard history stories about how those kinds of situations went. So it was like none of that. God is just coming into his nation and he is going to give them a set of, of laws to live by. And, and they weren't laws or guardrails to like contain and take away all the fun that the nation was going to have and just make it, you know, really a lame nation to be a part of. No, these were rules to help. These were rules that under, undergirded a relationship. That's what a good rule does, is it just supports and keeps healthy the relationship. And that's what God was after. He's saying, I want to come in and I want to give you a set of guidelines that if you follow them, your life will be better. You will be better at life. And in so doing, you will also honor me, your God, your Lord, your God. Okay? Now, I realize anytime, especially around church and religious people, that they talk about rules and all that kind of stuff. Some of us like, yep, because we grew up in a church or a religious context of rules and like legalism and lots and lots of structure, okay? Good rules, and God put these rules down not to, like I said, take away the fun, but kind of like, kind of like we have speed limits today, okay? We have speed limits because ultimately we know that they keep us and those we love safe, most of us don't follow them, okay? We break them, but underneath of it all, we know they're in our best interest, right? That's what God was trying to do. Same thing uh, like uh, crossing the street. Like no decently level-headed child has ever gone to their parents and said, mom, dad, why do I have to look both ways before I cross the road? That's super lame, you take all the fun out of crossing the road when I have to stop and look both ways before I cross it, right? No reasonable child has ever said to their parents, that is a lame rule, okay? And live to tell about it at least. <laughs> Sorry, that was really bad. Okay, <laughs> that was not my notes. Anywho, okay, <clears throat> okay, <laughs> I'm cracking myself up. All right, so so he came in and God said, here's, here's the start of the rules. Most of you maybe have heard of these rules. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. Because I've committed to you and I'm just asking that you commit to me, not because I want to control you. I'm not going to get involved in your free will. I give you ultimate free will to decide what you choose to decide. I'm just telling you, if you live by my rules, you will have a better life. That was God's commitment to them. And then it went on to, you know, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, all those other rules, okay? But here's where God started. It was a matter of commitment, of, a, of trust. And so what did the nation of Israel do? Of course, um, they built an idol, a uh, golden calf, right? Because God said not to do it, and they're like, I gotta do it, like most, most kids do. Um, and so they built an idol, and, and things kind of got on rocky ground, and Moses came down, and kind of fixed the situation. But then they had other issues, so God said, I'm gonna have to put you in a timeout. So he put him out in timeout in the wilderness. He said, I'm gonna take you to the promised land, but not now, because you've kind of misbehaved, so you need a timeout. Eventually, they made it back into the promised land, okay? 
okay? Uh, and then lo and behold, uh, they continued to have more and more problems. Uh, they kind of got a little arrogant, okay? And so God brought some judges along to kind of dole out some appropriate justice. We're going to talk about that after Easter. It's going to be a super fun series, so I hope you stick around after Easter for that series. We're going to talk about politics, all this good stuff. If that's not incentive enough, I don't know what is. So judges, okay, and then, um, then the nation of Israel said, this is cool, but we really want a king. Why do we want a king? Because everybody else has a king. Everybody around them has kings, and kings are just so cool, and if we had a king, then our lives would be better, and so God, you should give us a king. So God gave them a king, and it didn't go better. I mean, it kind of went better at first, but then it kind of went downhill, and then they had more than kings than they could ask for. They had two kings because the nation of Israel split into two, and because they were then weaker, the nation of Babylon came in and took them over and exiled them to Babylon. It was just a really sad deal, and suffice it to say, for about a thousand years, Israel did this. I'm coming back to God, and I'm going to trust God, and then I'm like, ooh, my neighbor has this shiny thing, so I want what my neighbor has. And so then they got what their neighbor had, and they didn't trust God, and then they got in trouble, and then they came back, and then back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. And that's what happened. And so I'm just so glad that 3,000 years later, we have all grown up. I'm glad that today, that today, we always trust God and never covet, covet our neighbor's stuff. Thank you. Yes. Right. That's a joke too. Okay. Yeah, that, that we have often, even today, we look at the success of our neighbors and we look at our success and we say, oh, but that's so shiny and they got a new car and a new house and they just remodeled and they got a new job and I need a new job. I'm sure they're getting paid more. I deserve to get paid more. Or we covet their neighbor's spouse and we say, wow, if my spouse could be like that spouse, then my life would be better. And it just gets super messy. Their kids are so successful and they're in all these sports and we should have our kids in all these activities and being super successful and blah, blah, blah. It just goes back and forth. And we just ended up, without even realizing it, coveting what our neighbor had. And we get into trouble and generally speaking, we don't involve God in any of those decisions. Nor do we just trust God in general. And I'm talking to those of you in the room that consider themselves Christians or Jesus followers, that we don't always trust God whether it be small planning decisions and moments in our lives or big ones, like when was the last time you just said, hey God, I'm just going to take some 10 minutes of silence here to pray and just ask if you have any input on this big decision we're making. Has it been like a week or a couple days or we're talking years since you invited God into a decision that you made, especially the big ones? Yeah, today, I think more is the truth is that we aren't as committed to God. We're not as committed to God as we should be, but God has always been committed to his people. We're not committed to God as maybe we should be. And if you're not a Christian, I get that this doesn't make sense for you. But for those of you who have said, I'm trying to figure the God thing out, I'm trying to commit to God, we haven't committed to God as we should be. But we have thousands and thousands of years of history that said God has always been committed to his people. He said to his nation, he said to his people, he said, before you all in this room, myself included, thousands of years ago, same thing, before you even existed, I committed to Abraham. I made a covenant with Abraham that I would be committed to my people. Always. Not because they needed to manipulate me. Not because we had to come up with some, you know, transaction like you scratch my back, I scratch yours. No, I'm just committed, period. And we know that 
We know that God has been committed because dozen plus, probably maybe two dozen people over the course of this 1,500-year span of time wrote down how God was consistently behind the people that he had committed to be behind. And we read about this throughout what's called the Old Testament or kind of the first section of the Bible. That, and, and mind you, they didn't just record the good things, right? It isn't just a book of like, oh, in the nation of Israel, they trusted God and awesome things happened over and over and over again. No, they put the good in with the bad and they were really honest about the bad. Like they didn't hold back at all. And we'll read that in the, the story of the judges. There's some stories in there. You'd be like, that's in the Bible? Yeah, you should read it sometime. It's wild. And, and how the nation of Israel continually rejected trusting God and, and the problems that came out of it. And when, I mean, if like you were writing a story about yourself, wouldn't you be tempted to just kind of only write the good things more than the bad things or to like sugarcoat the bad things a little bit? They didn't. They told it as, I mean, clear as day. Like if you think they were holding back, then I can't imagine what they were holding back from because they were very, very honest about some of the terrible, terrible things that they as a nation did. And they wrote that to illustrate God's commitment because to, under, to, to sugarcoat the bad things that they did would have been to um, discount the amazing commitment that God had for them even when they did some of the worst things you could imagine. And then, as if the story couldn't get more unique, one day, 1,500 years after that commitment with Abraham, God wasn't done yet. And in, uh, in uh, Israel, modern-day Israel, there is a river that div divides the modern is nation of Israel and Palestine with uh, the, the nation of uh, Jordan, and that is called the, the Jordan River. And onto this river, which still is there today, though it's shifted slightly over thousands of years, um, there stepped a man 2,020 years ago stepped a man. And this man, actually 20 years ago, excuse me, it'd be like mm, 1990 years ago. Anywho, so there would have been this man, uh, he was kind of a unique looking man, he wore weird clothes, he smelled, uh, looked like he literally just came out of the wilderness, stepped onto the banks of the Jordan River, and he started doing the strangest thing. He started baptizing people, and he started telling people that they needed to be ready because God was going to do something incredible in the world. God was up to something. And this was a moment that the entire world needed to pay attention to. This was the ultimate show of God's commitment to the world. And so lots of people, in fact, depending on what gospel you read, it says that like the whole nation of Israel came out, which was probably uh, like hyperbole, it was a little exaggeration, um, but it was probably a lot of people showed up. And the religious people, the Jewish religious leaders, the, the remnants of the nation of Israel, or what should have been the nation of Israel at the time, came out because if God was doing something in the world, uh, then they needed to be there because they were the religious people. They showed up on the banks of the Jordan River to hear this man named John called John the Baptist, preach and baptize people. And when John saw specifically the religious people, here's what he said according to the account of Matthew. But when he saw many of these Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, the, the higher-ups of the religious order, coming to where he was baptizing, John said to them, You brood of vipers. Like, how do you really feel, John? I mean, try that with your boss tomorrow. You brood of vipers. 
You viper, you boss, you. Okay, don't do that. But brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He goes on. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. In other words, God can take stones and make better children of Abraham than you. Because you have gotten so far away from God's original commitment to Abraham and what that means for your life. Now, why was John so strong with the religious people of the day? Because they had taken advantage of these three things that had seeped into other religions in the world at that time and for thousands of years before. Manipulation, transaction, and capitulation. What were they doing with the the people? They were saying to the people um, that they had been born to the family of Abraham, that they had grown essentially up on the right side of the tracks. Um, they They would stand out on the sides of the roads and preach and pray loudly so that everybody could hear how amazing that they were. They dressed really well. They smelled great, which was kind of unique for those days. Uh, And so they just needed to let everybody know how good that they were. Because certainly people that were dressed like that, looked like that, prayed like that, could manipulate God in amazing ways. Had God's God's, um, you know, help in whatever that they wanted to do. They had the authority of God. And they would tell people that they, they the people that they led, they, they, tell, they told them that they needed to pay more to the temple, which eventually just went into their pockets. And, and all these things that kind of religion has been accused of doing for thousands and thousands of years, they did the same exact thing. Guys just give in, ladies just give in. You just have to surrender to the powers, which was essentially the priest, and just, just leave your thoughts at the door. Don't ask good questions. Don't question it at all. Just, just believe us. We have God's ear. Now, just out of curiosity, if, if you're married, um, how would that go over in your marriage? How would, honestly, any of these go over in your marriage? I mean, you tried something like that. I mean, try any of those things. Just, just try to do things really nicely in front of your spouse. Only do good things, of course, when your spouse is looking so that they can see it. But, like, how would that impact your relationship? What if you, you post it on social media all the time and you told all your friends and you just said, oh, my spouse is just so amazing, just incredible, you know, and talked him up? You know, maybe in the short term, your spouse would be like, hey, wow, that's, that's really nice of you to do. But, but over time, they, they'd kind of sit there, wouldn't they? And they'd kind of look at you and like, is this, about, is this about you or is this about me? Is this about you looking good or is this really about me? Are you really about caring for me? Are you really, is this really about your commitment to me, or is this about you looking good to everybody else? Are you just manipulating me and our marriage to get what you want? That's what they were doing. That's what the religious leaders of those day were doing, because any good spouse eventually would look at their spouse, and they'd say, listen, you don't have to tell people about your love for me. You just, you just need to tell me. You don't have to do good things only when I'm looking. You just do them all the time because you're just a good person, because your heart is good. That's what you tell, that's what you tell your spouse. That's what God was saying to these religious people. That's what John was trying to convict these religious leaders about, saying it's not about how loudly you profess it. It's about how you show it in here and you show it when nobody's looking. So John, now, 
addressing the religious leaders and the problems that they get into, and sometimes, honestly, the problems I think we get into, as some of us consider ourselves religious people, talking it, not walking it, um, actions, uh, not speaking what our words say. That's last month's series, if you want to go check that out online. Um, but then the next day, something amazing happened. The religious leaders there. Then the next day, John tells us this is what happened. The next day, John saw Jesus. And Jesus was this amazing, incredible, unique thing that God was doing to show his commitment to the world, coming toward him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, God, God put skin in the game. An invisible God took on flesh to come to this world so we could see what God was really like. And so that God could teach us, and God could help us, and God, most importantly, could fix the problems that we had created in our past and would create in our future when we didn't trust Him. And we coveted the things that we weren't supposed to covet when we sinned. And God was here to fix it. Not because we deserved it, but because He had committed to us. Because He had loved us. So Jesus, God in a body, lives among us and then dies to take away the sin of the world. That is pretty unique in the world of religion, to have God take on human form for the sole purpose of loving and fulfilling God's original commitment to mankind. Now, in the modern world, I think we've lost that level of commitment. I think, honestly, we've lost a lot of commitment because we live in, during a time in our society uh, of convenience, not commitment. We live in the world of two-day shipping, free returns, no money down, uh, no contracts, you know. That sells. Convenience sells. Commitment, a lot harder to sell. And I, it's not a, a, accusing anybody. I'm not trying to, you know, combat culture or anything like that. I'm just saying that I think those conveniences, which are nice, trust me, I take full advantage of two-day shipping and free returns, but that has seeped into our relationships today. And it's seeped into, I think, how we love, or more importantly, how we don't love. That to commit in love is just strange, because in all the other areas of, your, of our life, we're moving in a direction of convenience, not commitment. And we know in our heart of hearts and in our mind that we know commitment is messy. We know commitment is hard. We know commitment will ask things of us that convenience won't, and we're not sure that we're willing to sacrifice and make that commitment. It's a lot easier to live in the world of manipulation, transactions, and capitulation. It's easier just to manipulate people into loving us or to agree on kind of a transaction where you bring this to the table, I bring this to the table, so therefore we will have a relationship than to say no. First and foremost, before we get into any of the dealings, I just want you to know that I am committed, first and foremost. Real commitment means we commit it all. Real commitment means we commit it all. Because wouldn't it be weird, like, to stand up, if you ever went to a wedding or, or in your, your own wedding, to stand up and, or to sit there and watch the wedding taking place, and during their vows, you know, they get to the part of, like, death do us part, okay? And then one of the parties sits there and, like, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know? Like, repeat I do, and they're like, mm, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to repeat that, like, till death do us part. 
I mean, we do that in almost every other area of our life. We wouldn't commit till death do us part, but in this case, we're going to do it, right? Till death do us part. Except every single day, we're bombarded with messages that say convenience trumps commitment every time. But wouldn't it change things if when we started a relationship, we started on the foot of commitment first and foremost? Now, I'm not saying you're always going to be with that person. I'm not saying you need to stay in an unhealthy relationship. Please, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you should stay in a relationship full of manipulation and, and, and transaction, that kind of thing. But I'm saying what foot is the relationship starting on? When it comes to your kids, do you start on the foot of commitment every time? You are committed to your kids first and foremost before anything else. Or... Do we tend to slide into how our kids make us look? Or how well our kids are doing or not well our kids are doing? Is the first message our kids hear that we are committed to them or how they could be doing better to please us? That's hard. It's hard to not slip into convenience. Generally, generally commitment will always be the harder route. Generally, commitment will always be the harder route. It is a lot to put it all on the line. And what all on the line means, like in a relational context, it means I'm going to do everything I can, and I'm going to put everything on the table as an option to make sure this commitment stays true. If that requires counseling, I'm going to get counseling because I'm not even going to look at the problems you, honey, could be bringing in the relationship. I'm going to start with me. I'm going to start on what I could be doing better to love and be committed to you. If that means I'm going to read things, if that means I'm going to reprioritize my life, reprioritize my time, reprioritize my finances, I'm willing to put that on the table. Why? Because I'm committed to you. Because isn't it true that real love, as our heart of hearts tells us, as God designed it to be, real love means we commit it all. There are no off-limit areas that, hey, let's dive into this problem, let's dive into this conversation, it's uncomfortable, it's painful, but I'm willing to go there. Why? Because I love you and I've committed to you. There is no better illustration than real love than God's commitment to his people that for 3,500 years since the time of Abraham through Jesus, God has always followed through in his commitments, even though the people he loves and committed to did not follow through on their end. And some of us, that's where we are and have been too, that we haven't brought that full commitment to the table. Some of us, we just, we just need to know, we need to come to the place where we realize, um, because we've not maybe experienced real commitment in a long time, if ever, this degree of commitment, we just need to come to the place where we're willing to accept God's commitment to us. That God so loved us that he came to earth. God made flesh to love us and show us just how committed he is. Love without commitment, I think, tears at how God created us to live. And some of us need to take that step back towards understanding God's commitment and God's love for us. And then for many of us, probably most of us, I'm including myself most definitely in this category, some of us need to remember how this commitment plays out 
to the people around us. Because remember, God revealed himself primarily through a people. And that stays through, true for us as Christians, not just for the uh, nation of Israel, but through, um, through the new covenant and through Jesus as well, that he is revealing himself primarily through us. We are to be the light to the world, the salt of the earth, that we are to show his love to the world. Jesus said when asked what are the greatest commandments, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love your God because God loves you. God's committed to you, so shouldn't you be committed back? This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if you are in a dating relationship, especially in the month of February and Valentine's Day and all that good stuff, okay, are you dating with commitment? Are you dating with commitment? Or is maybe there more transaction, manipulation, or we're just going to call it negotiation because I think most of us uh, kind of balk at the idea of manipulating someone else. We'll call it negotiation where you tend to win most of the negotiations, okay? Negotiation or capitulation in your dating relationships. Do, do the other people in those relationships have to give you more? And what if they would stop doing that? Would that change the dynamic of your dating relationships? Some of you, um, it, when it comes to marriage and relationships, listen, you can negotiate a lot of things. You, you, I'm not saying negotiation isn't a part of relationships. I'm just saying you can negotiate the date of your wedding, but you shouldn't negotiate the commitment you have to stand before God and your closest friends and family and say, I love this person and I will commit to them till death do us part. You need to put it all on the table. Some of your marriages, you're holding some things back. You're saying, I'm not going to go to counseling. I'm too much of a man for that. I'm too much of a woman for that. But most women are pretty good about that kind of stuff. Generally, the men, just going to be honest, okay? Us men have trouble with talking about our feelings. Um, But you put it all on the table and you say, if that's what it takes, I am committed. Why? Because I love that's what love requires. Some of you religious people, Christians, okay, actions speak louder, okay? And so we just need to make sure that if we're committing in our words, we need to be committing in our actions as well, and we really need to be doing a better job of living that out because people will poke holes in our hypocrisy. They've done it for thousands of years so far, and they will continue to do it again. Some of us, we need to better figure out our commitment in our words to make sure when we say them, we mean it, and we're going to follow through. If we say we're going to do it, we're going to do it. Some of us, when it comes to our finances, we need to make some decisions and appropriate commitments, whether it be to our children's future, whether it be to our retirement, whether it be to God and the church, maybe it's just generosity in general and nonprofits and places that help and impact people. We need to make those commitments. We need to have business relationships with people. Some of you are leaders in the business community or you have influence into other people's lives. And if you have that influence, what you need to make sure you're doing is when you commit, you're committing first. You say to that client, I am committed to you. There's no manipulation involved. I am committed to you because my God is committed to me. I am trustworthy first and foremost because I'm committing before anything else. Love seen in service to others. I serve you, not you serve me, because I'm committed to you. My friends, your spouse, your loved ones will never, ever, ever, your kids will never, ever, ever be able to earn and earn the love you've shown for them. They will never repay the money you've spent on diapers or you will spend on diapers. Never's going to happen. But that's why you're committed, first and foremost. 
Please don't lose sight of that. And if you think you are losing sight of it, go read the Old Testament for yourself. Go read the Bible for yourself and see how time after time, this is how God designed our world to work. God designed his relationship with us to work and how our lives are better when we choose to commit to other people just as God committed to us. Perfect timing. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I just uh, pray that wherever this sits with us, that you would help it to sink in. For some of us to sink in, let's sink into this idea um, that God, God is committed to us. That God's been committed to his people, first and foremost, before anything else, for thousands and thousands of years, and he's committed to us today. And we can live in that stability, in that truth, in that trust. Lord, help those of us who have been following your son for a long time and put our faith in you a long time ago, maybe just even a few months ago, and maybe we're still learning the ropes, whatever this looks like, to remember to not lose sight of your commitment to us and how we need to, in all of our relationships, in this modern world of love, we need to start with commitment. Not because someone has earned it or deserves it or it's just a transaction. Not so that it primarily benefits us, but because we love them and we're committed just as our Heavenly Father loves and is committed to us. Wherever this sits, let it not fall away as we walk out the doors, not fall away as we have fun with our friends tonight over Super Bowl, that we may remain true, remain centered in your commitment to us. Give us the strength, the wisdom, the people, whatever it takes in our lives to make sure we do not lose sight of that because it is life-changing. It is life-changing. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that you feel encouraged by God's commitment over thousands and thousands of years to his people and to you and how that can be a game changer in your life and if you show that same commitment to those around you. Thanks so much for being here.